It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in because we're continuing in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, last week we got through verse 9 of chapter 1, and today I'd like to try to cover as much as we can, hopefully get through even up to verse 17. We'll see how it goes because there's so much in this content. As you know, as a verse-by-verse expository church at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, we like to spend time really just going through each of these verses to make sure we understand the full context of what we're reading. And even in the brief time that we have, it's just really not possible to cover it all, especially if you look at all 60 six books of scripture, and we find that there are references throughout scripture supporting each of these texts. So it's an incredible study, and I I just want to just jump right into this with this. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this book, and many of you probably are familiar with it, The Screwtape Letters. Now, in this particular book, it's a it's a haunting work, if you will, about a senior demon who is advising his younger nephew, Wormwood, on how to afflict Christians. And, and so at one point, he, he challenges Wormwood to focus in on what he calls purely indifferent things. Now, now this demon believes that if Wormwood persuades Christians to focus on purely indifferent things, that they're going to be distracted from their mission. And what are these purely indifferent things? Well, clothes, uh, candles, religious patterns and traditions, as the book goes on to describe. And and we know that these things exist in the church today and throughout our lives. In the world, as we're working and living in the world, there's all these things that can distract. But what he's really calling his attention to here is that in the church, that if he can get these Christians distracted from their mission by focusing on all of the philosophical, doctrinal, even practical non-essentials within the church that he get them so polarized and divided that they won't be effective in their mission and ultimately turn these Christians against each other. So what we find in this particular work is the, the, the greatest problems that the church might face today in this world is from within the church. I mean, Satan's strategy is often to divide and conquer, and therefore we need to turn the tables on him. And and that's why we, we go back to the word of God to make sure we're keeping the main thing, the main thing, and doing what God has called us to do. And in 1 Corinthians is written to do just that, as this church was getting wayward, distracted, even taking in false doctrine and, well, accepting things that were of the world within the church, Paul is setting them straight. And so we need to go back to this text and read it because that's what it's still applicable today. It was applicable then, it's applicable now. So here we are in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's read. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, Paul argues that we can have true and lasting unity 
when we're focused on Jesus Christ. Now, now that seems to make sense. It seems to be common sense, that, it, or it should be within the church. But what we have to do to make that successful, what Paul's arguing here is that we must major on Jesus Christ because it puts everything else into proper context. Now, an exhortation that he's making here, he's, he's stressing this point. It's an appeal then to all of us to make a willing choice to do this. Paul wants to convince his readers that we have to make the right choice based on understanding the truth and not based on simply just being told to do it, but because we make a conscious decision that we will do as we're instructed to do for God's kingdom, not for ours, building his greater kingdom, doing his work, not for our gain or or for our own edification. So one of the lessons I've learned in my ministry is that commanding people to do things generally just doesn't work out. And so Paul's not trying to throw his weight around here. So we're not reading, thus saith John. That that just seems to have a limited impact. Whenever I'm telling people to do something, they just seem to resist. What we have to understand is that we have to want to do the right thing here. And that's ultimately what Paul's exhorting the readers to do. You need to have the same likeness of same understanding that we're on the same mission here. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. So lasting change only comes about when people are persuaded in their own minds and hearts. I can't command you to be unified. Unity is a truly, it truly is a matter of the heart. So after all, it's, it's Jesus who reminds us in Matthew 12, 25, that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Yes, it's, it was Jesus Christ who spoke those words before Abraham Lincoln. And he spoke, Abraham Lincoln said that on June, uh, June 16th of 1858, and often he gets credit for that, but actually that came from the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 12, 25. So this subject of unity is vital to our testimony, and that's why Jesus asked the Father that we be united. We go to John 17, 21, we read, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So we're representing the Godhead when we are unified. It's like when we stay married, that even as difficult as it might be, I don't know how long you've been married, maybe you're not married yet, but uh, I, I have the, had the privilege now for being with my wife for 27 years. And I just spoke to a group about it this weekend that, you know, just because on your wedding day you have a marriage license and it says that you're married, it's not the same thing as after you've ventured to journey through life together, being refined and sharpened and, and becoming truly one flesh after 30, maybe 40 years together. They're both titled as married, but one is very different than the other. And, then, and so is our journey with Jesus Christ. And, and so here he's asking that they be united as one, commanding them, may they be one as we are one, because it represents something so much bigger than us. So when we're obedient to Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5, that men, as we are emulating Christ, as we are imitators of Christ Jesus, loving our wives as Christ loved the church, what it's representing is Christ and his church. Our marriage then is bigger than us. 
And that's often what we find when God has commanded us to something. It's because there is a ripple effect through time by our obedience, and therefore calling us to unity represents Jesus Christ, represents God the Father, represents the Holy Spirit, represents the triune nature of God. And we often fail to see that because we're short-sighted. So Paul uses this term, brethren, adelphos, 39 times in 1 Corinthians. It's more frequently used here than any of his other letters. The next one would down in that list would be Romans and, and perhaps a, a 1 Thessalonians. Combined, they, they each have about 19 each, so just under 40 uh, between the two of those combined. So here in 1 Corinthians, he really stresses that we are brethren and we need to act like it. So he's subtly softening the rebuke that he has to deliver to them by saying that, that, identifying with them that we're in this together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you're divided, it impacts me as well. So he's reminding them that they belong together and have a common identity in Jesus Christ. We're family. After all, it's time that we act like it. Now, when I'm writing emails or texts, I often refer to men in the church as brother. You've probably heard that from time to time. Maybe you're a recipient of one of those letters. And it's not just a term of endearment. I'm not speaking biologically. I'm speaking spiritually. The person I'm writing to is my brother or sister in Christ. And since that's true, I need to seek to be unified with that person. We're a family. We need to act like a family. I have five children, and there's a mutual respect for one another. If one of them is perhaps talking disrespectfully to the other, we're going to jump in on that. You don't treat that person like that. We're family. Our bond as spiritual brothers then and sisters is even greater than our biological bond as a family. So, so we have an obligation before God to one another to act as if it's so. You can't talk to a brother or sister without with this lack of respect that we often do and we'll get into this later as we talk about even the word hate and what that means. We often think hate simply means that we're despising someone, but actually the root word of that is to dismiss someone as though they're not even important. That's where hate begins, as though they're not important or even in the image of God as a child of God. We're Adelphos. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to treat each other as such. Paul's appeal is grounded in the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is pulling out the big guns here. He's putting what he has about to say at the highest level of authority coming from the Lord himself. So he's called us into a fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we're commanded then to live in unity, not by Paul's exhortation, but by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important here, he says that we speak the same thing. Now, this is quite different from agreeing on everything. It's used to describe political parties or communities that were free from factions. So they all agreed on what the platform was. There's no competition in that. They understood what the objectives were, what they were doing, their mission together. Now, while politicians disagree, they're often careful on how they do so. I mean, we don't see that, it seems like, in the media these days. But they want to represent a unified front for a particular political party. 
So as parents, we also understand that we must present a united front. If we aren't united, our kids are going to play against each other, right? They're going to get mom to, to say something that's in a disagreement to dad. They play them off each other. So if they have any idea that there's a possible division, they're going to exploit that and use it to their full advantage. So speaking the same thing then applies in the church that we are to, well, although we may not be fully free from disagreement from time to time, we do so respectfully because we understand that we're on the same team moving towards the same objectives through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a commitment that is required from every member to be united in that understanding. And he says here, this the, uh, the other positive appeal in this phrase that he says here is that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the word translated made complete or perfectly joined is used in the Gospels to describe the mending of fishing nets. So the mending process has to be done regularly to make sure they didn't lose their livelihood by losing fish. So relationships have gaps like like holes that might appear in a net. And we must always look out for these holes and be ready to mend them. So, So this Greek verb is also used of restoring bones that are broken. So as a church family, we're to come together as one and don't let any chinks in the armor be exploited by the enemy. If we don't tend to these things, relationships, relationships that are that are failing or broken or where there's hurts, somebody said something about someone else behind their back, gossip is ensuing. These things have to be squelched. Otherwise, the enemy will exploit it and create division within the camps of God. So Paul envisions being made complete or perfectly joined together is to be this the whole local church involved in this. It's not just the activity of one or another, but the whole group. Now, there are millions of Western Christians who don't attend church, who assume that they're mature enough or just simply walking with God, or perhaps they, they've got it all figured out, and nothing could be further from the truth. Maturity only takes place when we're in the fellowship with others, because spirituality demands community and accountability. You will never know if you are spiritual if you avoid relationships with other Christians. We need iron sharpening iron. This is why we're told not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. The church is a gem for the soul. It's to work out our spiritual muscles. As I just cited, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, he tells us, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Paul then gives us further instruction in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Here's what he says. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, 
Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So Paul's point is simple. If oneness of mind and judgment marks the church, it is because Christ is one. Oneness is a basic principle of the Christian church. Now, this leads Paul to appeal to the church to have no division. Schismata is the word there. And it's like it recalls furrows or grooves or ruts that were created by plowing. It's the word that's used in the Gospels to depict a a tear even in a garment or a wrong opinion about Christ. So so Paul is saying that these are not minor things. They, They have no place in the body of Christ. This is why Christ gives us instructions for mending these divisions quickly because he knows that the enemy will try to exploit them in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 19. We should do it quickly, as we're instructed to do in Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 26, and Ephesians 4, 26. For if we fail to mend these issues, it's going to give the devil a foothold to create division according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. So this subject of unity in Christ is so critical to the Apostle Paul. He addresses it frequently throughout his epistles. So this was a common issue in the church then, and unfortunately, it's a common issue in the church today. In Philippians 2.2, he tells us to be of the same mind. In Colossians 3.14, he encourages us to be bound together in perfect harmony through love. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he desires us to be in agreement with one another. In Galatians 3, 28, he reminds us that we're all one in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 15, 5 to 6, he pens these powerful words. Let me read this to you. He says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we move on in this, we've got to recognize two important principles. Number one is that disagreement can be healthy, okay? Let me just squelch that right now. That you know, We think just because we disagree on something that somehow that's the, the spawn of division. Well, we can do so respectfully. So while the Bible warns about the dangers of bitter disputes— It also urges us to cultivate the art of gracious disagreement. I I found that if I'm humble and I'm responsible, I can learn a great deal from those I even disagree with. In fact, it instills in me a love and a patience for people who disagree with me on various matters. Yes, it happens. It it, it cultivates humility. So when disagreements arrive, when they arise, they certainly will, that I've got to I've got to learn how to work through those issues with them. I'm often reminded of Proverbs 15:1 that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So so when we're walking in loving kindness and truth, God can make even our enemies to be at peace with us according to Proverbs 16:6 6 to 8. So when the apostles and the rest of the 120 saints gathered in the upper room according to Acts 1:12 to 14, they were all like-minded and in fact they were of one spirit and in focus. They reached a particular decision with unity. And so the same kind of decision-making process can be seen again in Acts chapter 6, 1 to 6 and 15, 1 to 35. So 
listen, conflict is unavoidable. We don't have to feel guilty just because we're involved in, in a disagreement. It's going to come. Conflict will come. It, it comes to the best of churches, to the best of spiritual elders, to the best of church boards, to even the best of friends. And it even came between Paul and Barnabas, even Paul and Peter. Conflict came not only to these immature uh, churchgoers, these believers, if you will, of, of Corinth, but even to those mature believers at Philippi. So really the question becomes, how are we going to handle it? If we're mature, we're going to handle it in a God-honoring way. And I'll tell you this, that sometimes disagreements will mature us if we let it. So God's directives are that we address these issues, that we speak to the ones we have issues with, because far too often what we do is we hold it, we harbor with it, we, we let it fester in our hearts, and, and, and then we don't deal with it, and we've got a disagreement with somebody, and then we go talk to somebody else about it, as opposed to do that person, as Scripture tells us to do in Matthew chapter 18, that we, we do it in a brotherly way, because if, if they're family and they're children of God, we need to treat them as such, and therefore we need to resolve these things, lest the enemy exploit it and actually start to transform your very character. Because when you harbor ill feelings towards another, what you find is it can hinder your prayers. We're told that in 1 Peter chapter 3. It can hinder our walk with the Lord, with other brothers and sisters, because we have unconfessed sin. We've got to leave the altar, go deal with this and make things right and ask God for discernment in so doing. So for most people, we choose to avoid conflict and then to bury our frustrations and concerns. And unfortunately, this only amplifies the problem and it creates deep-seated issues and ultimately leads to divisions. Who gets the victory in that? Satan does. So if your tactic is to keep burying your issues, and then what happens then in this is you start to build up a volcano that's about to explode with disastrous implications. And then you're going to find yourself erupting over small issues with other people, over non-related factors because you've developed unhealthy habits. Now listen, I'm just going to be transparent with you on this. I, I, my grandfather, whom I loved greatly, he would do just that. He, he would allow things to build up from conflict at work, at home, in relationships. He'd never give a rebuttal. He'd never give a rebuke or even address the issue. And then days later, if someone didn't take the trash out, he'd just explode. So the response to the trash was not proportional to the infraction. And rather, what it was was a built-up frustration that caused the situation to escalate due to unresolved issues with non-related factors or even the individuals that were involved. And I find myself doing that from time to time. And many of us are probably guilty of the same behavior if we're honest with ourselves. It is far too easy to try to avoid the conflict. And, and if it's quite possible for conflict to be managed for good. If we channel this, then conflict can expose problems that need to be worked out. Conflict can deepen relationships in marriage, family, and church. But discernment through a mature faith by the work of the Holy Spirit is required to navigate this issue. So otherwise, you can create more issues on how you reacted to the conflict rather than addressing the core of the issue. So most people fight about how they were spoken to, you know, they were treated without love or respect, rather than addressing the initial complaint or grievance. So the tongue of the offended or the offender was not guarded with gentleness, kindness, or regard for the well-being of the one addressed. 
So the source of the issue was never fully navigated and new issues have now emerged. And that's why James addresses the issue of what comes forth by way of the tongue to great extent in James chapter 3. So the tongue must be used carefully. It's kind of like this analogy that I've used with my children. I've reminded them of the power of the tongue by showing them. I I, I sat them all down at the dinner table one time, and I put out wax paper across the dinner table. And I sat them down, and I I put a tube of toothpaste in front of them. And I told them, I said, okay, now go ahead and squeeze all of that toothpaste outside of the tube. Just squeeze it all out. Make a mess. They're looking at me. They have the shocked look on their face, like, Dad is really going to let me make a mess with it? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Have fun. So they squeezed out all that toothpaste and made a mess, and it's all over the, the wax paper. And then I take a $20 bill out of my wallet. I put it in the middle of the table and I said, okay, so now all of you try to put that toothpaste right back into the tube. They look at me for a minute. They look at the $20 bill and they go to work and they start pushing that toothpaste right back into the tube. Little by little, each one starts to give up. Except for my oldest daughter, Ashley, she was determined to get every single piece of that, just drop of that toothpaste back into that tube. Well, finally she gives up. And then I use that as an opportunity to explain to them that the power of our words, that once they leave our lips, we cannot get them back. We can't put them back into our mouth. The damage has been done. We use this as an object lesson. We read the scripture together. Then we take the $20 and we go buy ice cream with it. Right, So it was a great object lesson with that, but it really is, is relevant to us as adults too. That often what we find is that our words can compound the problem. That if we are not using discernment of the Holy Spirit, when our first order of business, when disagreements occur, that we should be going to prayer. We should be seeking guidance, not using names, not pointing fingers, ask for wisdom and counsel on how to address this issue with a certain uh, challenge that you might face. Again, be very careful not to use this as an opportunity for gossip. Use wisdom and discernment. Approach that person graciously, carefully, respectfully. I think that's the word that's often lacking is we we are so uh, addressing our grievance. We're so caught up in how we've been offended that we forget to communicate with respect. That, that that individual is formed by Almighty God. They're a child of the living God. Treat them that way. They will under, they'll, they'll hear it. They'll hear it in your voice. If you're talking down to them, belittling them, if you're disrespecting, you'll compound the problem. Again, these are some of the basics that we often fail to apply in these situations and allow the division to continue to fester and, and escalate and increase. And suddenly we're fighting about things completely unrelated to the original problem. And so the, the devil knows this and he exploits this and he gets the church in fighting with one another in homes, with family members, and then to the extended family of the church of God. May it never be. We can do better. Let's treat each other with respect. Let's fight against the division. Let's fight for unity. And let's respect one another so that God is glorified. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we be of one mind, of one voice, as we glorify God the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope you've been encouraged. We're just getting started. Look at that. A whole message dedicated to one verse. All right, so we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 next week. I hope you've been encouraged. God bless you, my friends. If you're looking for a church to just to, to go deeper in the Word of God with other believers, if you're just looking for a fellowship, if you're looking for a community, then check us out at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Services are at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. Again, that's calvaryfountain.com. God bless you.